the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Everyone else, female and male personnel on the floor were kind of like, wow, that's crazy. And then the whispers start, right? And they all go off back to work and some, you know, you kind of overhear stuff like, never thought he would be like that. And other people are like, are you kidding me? I mean. There was always something wrong with him. He was evaluated. The experts said he should have been locked up and never let back out. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I'm sitting across... And I'm not singing across. I'm sitting across the screen from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And today is part two of the Gary Puckett story. If you haven't listened to part one, you're going to have no idea what we're talking about. So go back to last week and listen to that one first. And we still have our first degrees, Angie and Mike, who are now a married couple who worked with Gary at the same time the story unfolded. And we're going to get back into that in a second. But uh, how are we doing today, guys? I think we're doing great. We're doing all right. You know, I'm feeling pretty good. Why mm-hmm. not? This episode, you know, we recorded uh, this episode uh, last night, recording the second part today. We all texted each other and said this is one of our best episodes. I know. So, yeah. Well, you did. I'm. I like a lot of our episodes, <laughs> but I think that this we is. We didn't one of, disagree is, with you. This is but... one of the best. So I haven't. I haven't done a call for reviews in a while. If you want to give us a review, that would be wonderful. We're heading towards ten thousand. So. Ooh, yeah. yeah! Give us a five star review and follow us on TikTok. We have a new TikTok that we've started. And I'm pretty proud of it. So search the first degree on there and be friends with us. That's right. All right. Well, what day is it today, Billy? All right, today is March 23rd. And there's a bit of a battle going on because it's Cuddly Kitten Day. Mm. And it's also National Puppy Day. Oh. Do you say cuddly? Isn't it cuddly? Cuddly. cuddly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Anyways. Um, well, I know it's out of the spectrum that I land on for that one. Yes. Alexis? Wait, what was the question? Dogs Cuddle- or cats? Oh, Cuddly dogs. kitten or dogs. puppy day? Dogs for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think dogs so. all the way. I mean, mm-hmm. cats are cute. I just don't want one. I just don't like the way they smell in my mm. in houses. They're not for me. They Mm-mm. give me the sneezies. Okay. But they're cute. I'd never hurt one and I'd help one that needed me. <laughs> That's good. I like, I'd I never like hurt them. One. I like them. I good just don't to want know one. that you will never hurt, a, hurt cat a cat or any animal. Yes. That's that's pretty good and a standard, I think, for being a human. Remember when we were out of town and I got that ladybug out of the shower? Yes, I do. That's yeah. how much I care about. I, well, you would think ladybugs aren't the animal that people smush. hurt in smush. Not those are psychopaths would do that. Those well, are the ones. Alexis that also adopted a rabbit on the street too. So I did do that. Yeah, I am the the animals mayor of Los Angeles. Yes. That's right. I'm one of a Doctor Doolittle. That's right. Um, are there any other good days, or is that it? That was pretty much it. I think it was that, just that controversy between the the puppies and the kittens. I love it. All right. Well, uh, that's enough of that. So let's turn on the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you.
When we left off last week, 38-year-old Gary Puckett was on the run in an attempt to evade authorities after being named the prime suspect in the murder of 52-year-old Alice Underdahl. Alice was a wife, mother, and flight attendant who disappeared while running on a trail with her dog Lucy in September of 1997. A sketch of the suspect seen on the trail the next day circulated, which eventually led Kent Washington law enforcement to a level three sex offender out in parole, Gary Puckett. The day after Alice was killed, Gary showed up at work at Micron Industries, where Mike, Gary's superior at the time, had to sit down and warn Gary to stop harassing a female employee. And during that conversation, he noticed something different about Gary. Here's a reminder. I remember he had like colored tattoos on his arm or both arms and on his legs. And they were really big, like scabbed over scratches, not like a cat scratch, but like they had scabbed over kind of thing. And, and it just stood out to me because it was on both arms and on at least one of his legs. These scratches on Gary's arms were relevant because Alice Underdahl's dog Lucy had also been found dead on the trail. The day after these scratches were noted on Gary's extremities, Gary stopped showing up to work altogether. Police learned that Gary had abandoned his apartment, given away his beloved motorcycle, and had attempted unsuccessfully to cross over into Canada. He'd also paid his estranged wife a visit, and according to her, Gary was desperate, erratic, and suicidal. The concern that Gary's heightened state of desperation could activate his predatory, impulsive inclinations increased. Needless to say, a massive search for Gary Wayne Puckett went underway. The second leg of this story takes us back to September 28th of 1997, and this was five days after Alice was killed. The top songs on the charts at the time were Candle in the Wind by Elton John, How Do I Live by Leanne Rimes, and Quit Playing Games with My Heart by The Backstreet Boys, a classic. True classic. The biggest shows on TV at the time were Seinfeld, Step by Step, Ellen, and Buffy. And the second leg of this case is taking us east of Washington, White Earth, North Dakota. According to a 2019 census, this place has about 145 people. We're talking about a very small town here. But it does sit on a massive oil deposit. And these oil reserves, which extend through a broad swath of the state, have turned North Dakota into one of the largest oil producers in the U.S., while White Earth is small, it has some of the basic establishments that you're going to see anywhere. Businesses that cater to long-haul truck drivers who pass through the area, you know, truck stops. And there was a rest stop that was in White Earth right off of Highway 2. Right. And 35-year-old Julianne Julie Schultz wasn't a trucker. She was a bank teller and mother of three who lived in Burlington, North Dakota. But on this particular afternoon, Julie was headed to a League of Cities meeting in Williston, North Dakota, so she stopped at this rest stop on Highway 2 during her drive. The parking lot was mostly empty, although she did see a dark-colored van in the parking lot. Thinking nothing of it, she got out of her car and proceeded to the women's restroom. But once inside, a man appeared behind her. He was wielding a knife in his hand, and he ordered Julie to take off her sweater. Petrified, Julie attempted to comply, and as she did... The suspect slashed her throat at random without warning. Then he fled, leaving Julie for dead on the floor of this truck stop bathroom. The gash in Julie's throat was five inches long and blood was going everywhere. Julie lay motionless on the floor until she thought that the man was gone. The assailant thought that he'd killed her, but Julie didn't die. 
Instead, she held her wound closed with her sweater and put pressure on the bleeding in an attempt to slow it down. And Mike Barber from the Seattle Post Intelligencer covered the story and he wrote, Fearing she might die, Schultz took a small notepad and scratched tender I love yous and last thoughts to her three daughters ages 8 to 17 and to her parents. And despite bleeding profusely from her neck, Julie managed to stand up and stumble out of the bathroom, walking across a barren field towards the highway, hoping that she could flag down a vehicle for help, which is so, so crazy. Crazy. To think about and this scene. scary. Terrifying. Julie was actually able to flag down a car. And Mike Barber, again, for the Seattle post Intelligencer, reports that Joanne Backen, an emergency room nurse, and her husband, Rod, drove into view. At first frightened of the strange person with a sweater wrapped around her who was flagging them down, the couple jumped into action when Julie dropped the sweater and they saw that blood was spraying on their truck. Backen literally held Julie's life in her hands. She inserted fingers in Julie's throat to hold blood vessels together. Backen kept them there, immobile, for the four frustrating hours it took to drive. This is what happened. First, in one direction to find paramedics, and then in the opposite direction to a trauma center because there were high winds that day and it had grounded the emergency helicopter. It's truly harrowing. Unbelievable. Yeah. And Julie, unable to speak, was able to write down details about her attacker in the attacker's vehicle. And she did so while... The person who stopped to help her literally had fingers in her throat. She did all of this at the same time, and it's very hardcore. And here's the thing. The man who attacked Julie did not expect her to survive, and she shouldn't have. The odds were really against her. Julie was in rough shape, and she later said that an emergency medical first responders course she'd taken in the past helped to keep her calm and keep her from panicking, and remaining collected is likely what saved her life. And the police used these notes that Julie scribbled on that notepad to put out an all-points bulletin to law enforcement across the state of North Dakota to be on the lookout for her attacker. The police used the notes that Julie scribbled on that notepad to relay the attacker's information to the dispatcher. After receiving the call about the attack, authorities set up roadblocks and started looking for a very heavy man with short black hair, tattoos, driving an older model brown Dodge van with Washington license plates. Meanwhile, Julie was transported to Minot's Trinity Medical Center Hospital in serious condition. News reports of this incident would eventually reach our first degrees, Mike and Angie. And they were floored by the circumstances of Julie's tenacity, heroism, and survival. I just remember it distinctly because he had actually slit the girl's throat in North Dakota and left her at a rest rest stop, and she survived. And I thought that was just so different that he usually strangled them. It was, you know, a thing of power, not he didn't, for whatever reason, he slit her throat. So when Mike said he in the previous clip, he was, of course, referring to Gary Puckett. The police were right to fear what Gary might do while on the run from Washington authorities. Both Angie and Mike were relieved to hear that Julie had made it. I read that she was such a badass that she took notes of his description after her throat was slashed as she's trying to stop the bleeding and get help. Then, just after 9 p.m., around 200 miles east of the White Earth rest stop, a police roadblock had been assembled near Minot, North Dakota. There, a Cavalier County Sheriff's deputy spotted the suspect vehicle, a brown 1970s model Dodge minivan. But when the officers tried to pull the van over, the driver refused, and instead of stopping, accelerated. 
Officers gave chase and a high-speed pursuit started to unfold. And this chase went on for a while. Finally, the police had the van cornered, and while the van had stopped, the driver refused to step out of the vehicle. The officers tried to get the man to surrender, but he continued to refuse, and the standoff kept going. Then, about 15 minutes later, the police heard a gunshot. When police were finally able to approach the van, they found the man. His long blonde hair had been cut short and dyed black, clearly an effort to disguise himself to evade capture. But he was ultimately identified as Gary Puckett. And he was dead from a single self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Word of Gary's death began to spread, eventually making its way to Angie and Mike at Micron Industries. They found out what happened when the police had visited Micron a second time to ask even more questions about Gary. When they came back a second time, they did tell us, you know, they were there to inform us that he had committed suicide. And that's when they had disclosed he was being suspected of being involved with the the lady who was a jogger and had a dog. Over the months prior to Gary's death, Mike had inadvertently witnessed Gary's decline as he inched towards succumbing to his violent impulses. It was like this big ramp up that we just, he became more erratic at work and missing time. And then all of a sudden when he was finally gone, gone, when he had left and was on the highway and, and ended up in North Dakota, that it was, it was when things started to kind of fall into place and then we would get bits and pieces. He was stopped and he was surrounded and he committed suicide and said he's not going back to jail when they had him pulled over and he, he blew his brains out. There was a large response to Gary's death for many reasons. Those who knew him were shocked. Plus, a story about a level three sex offender slash suspected killer on the lam embarking on a high-speed chase before taking his own life is just the kind of salacious headlines that news outlets are searching for. So reporters were clamoring for information. Then I can remember the news crews would show up. They would come and, you know, be at the fence because they couldn't get in and, you know, wanting to ask us questions and things like that. Shock over Gary's death was palpable at Micron Industries. While Mike butted heads with Gary on the floor at times, there are some news reports that noted how Gary was pretty well-liked by many of the employees there, and he may have engaged in relationships with some of his female colleagues. There were two particular female employees, and it, and it stuck out with me because one was married and pregnant, who immediately burst into tears. And then there was another quieter female that started immediately kind of crying and in hysterics. The response to Gary's passing reflected his true duality. The outward perception and opinion on Gary Puckett varied vastly depending on who you asked. Everyone else, female and male personnel on the floor were kind of like, wow, that's crazy. And then the whispers start, right? And they all go off back to work and some, you know, you kind of overhear stuff like, never thought he would be like that. And other people are like, are you kidding me? I mean, there was always something wrong with him. What stood out with me was the two females, and I don't, he was pretty close to them, and I don't know if they were involved or not, but they they certainly got upset the minute they found out. They looked at each other like, why are you crying kind of thing. Angie recalls how her dad, the CEO of the company at the time, responded. And remember, he had taken an immediate liking to Gary. My 
conversation with him was he was like, gosh, you know, I talked to him on my walks or my tours or whatever, and he was a great, I thought Gary was a great guy, was what I remember him saying, and he was just shocked. Gary Puckett was dead, but the investigation into the murder of Alice Underdahl in Kent, Washington, and the attempted killing of Julie Schultz in North Dakota were very much underway. And as the details of Gary's violent criminal history were made public, some pointed questions began to emerge. Mainly, how many violent crimes could Gary actually be connected to? Fear that Gary could be responsible for more slangs heightened when a search of the van Gary was driving turned up some disturbing discoveries. Inside, they found ropes, ligatures, several knives, a machete, a ski mask, women's underwear, as well as rubber gloves and drugs. I mean, this is a straight up kill kit. And clearly, Gary had sinister plans that he wanted to carry out. And all this really amplifies how heroic Julie Schultz actually was in surviving and aiding in his capture. Seriously. I mean, imagine what he could have gone on to do, because clearly he had... You don't have that stuff for fun. No. No. And scarier still, Gary's autopsy revealed something very disturbing, further foreshadowing his intentions had he not been stopped. So Gary had actually shaved his entire body, which apparently was not something he did. And this is presumably to avoid leaving DNA evidence behind when he was committing brutal acts like the one he perpetrated against Julie Schultz at the rest stop. So between the cache of weapons and the strange body hair shaving precautions, it certainly seemed as though Gary intended on many more killings. Maybe, just maybe, he'd already committed several violent crimes in the days before he took his own life. Either way, Gary was gone, and whatever secrets he had, he took with him to the grave. On September 28, 1997, 38-year-old Gary Puckett took his own life after he slashed the throat of 35-year-old Julie Schultz. Following Gary's headline-making demise, law enforcement announced publicly that they suspected Gary in the murder of Alice and the attempted slaying of Julie. Gary's movements suggested that he was embarking on a killing spree of sorts. And an obvious question emerged. Had Gary killed anyone else? The Mount Trail County Sheriff's Department in North Dakota, which was leading the investigation in the Julie Schultz attack, issued a nationwide teletype asking other law enforcement agencies to report any unsolved homicides or attempted homicides at rest areas with similar circumstances. Minnesota, Montana, and obviously Washington were among the states that responded. Right. And you see why they're interested in him for other cases, because when you're looking at Gary's criminal history, starting from when he's a child, you can observe what appeared to be a very clear pattern of escalation over time. Certainly, he was stopped at certain times when he was going to jail and he was subject to treatment. But when he was free, I mean, he seemed to be in an upward motion towards it constantly. So there's no doubt he had all the makings of a serial killer. He'd been a peeper as a teen. He'd broken into homes and stolen underwear as a teen. And by 20, he'd beaten and raped his friend's grandmother. Even after he was paroled from jail the first time, he was sent back for stalking and exposing himself to teens at a mall. None of these characteristics suggest Gary was a one-time offender. Unsolved murders in the SeaTac Washington area were re-examined to see if Gary could be connected to them. But trying to connect Gary to unsolved slangs would not be an easy feat. And here's why. 
There are a lot of notable serial killers that have come out of the SeaTac area and from the Pacific Northwest in general. And a lot of them were full throttle killing frequency in the 1990s. And one that immediately comes to my mind is Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. There was the discussion because of the intensity of the investigation and getting dates of when he was missing work that there was a suspicion at the time that he was suspected of being the Green River Killer before they had ever caught that guy. Gary Ridgway. Gary Ridgway. Freaking terrifying it, because literally the plant, the Kent plant that we worked at, was right adjacent to the Green River. Gary Ridgway wasn't caught yet, so he was still at large. So they were searching, and this Gary Puckett had a history of raping and disposing along the Green River. Gary Ridgway is an American serial killer who killed many teenage girls and women in the state of Washington during the 80s and 90s. He was initially convicted of 48 separate murders. And as part of his plea bargain, another conviction was added, bringing the total number of convictions to 49, making him the second most prolific serial killer in the United States, according to confirmed numbers. And while he was convicted in 49 cases, police suspect that he's responsible for more than 70 murders total. In court statements, Ridgway later reported that he had killed so many women that he lost count. And Ridgway wasn't the only Washington-based serial killer operating at this time. There was Robert Lee Yates, suspected of killing 18 people between 75 and 98. You also had Bundy. You had John Allen Muhammad, who would later become known as the DC Sniper. Then there were dozens of lesser-known serial killers operating this time as well. In fact, Washington state is the fifth largest producer of serial killers out of the 50 states. And there's a debate in the true crime community. Why do you think so many serial killers come from the Pacific Northwest? Some people say it's because of it's it's the wilderness. There's all those places to hide. Lex, we've talked about this before. We've actually been up there before. What do you think? I think there's a lot of jobs for people. Like there's like a lot of ports. And I think being so close to Canada, it gives criminals sort of this comfort that they could maybe cross into another country immediately after committing a crime. Mm-hmm. Good call. It's sort of a transient. Yeah, maybe. I was going to say, do you think that a part of it is kind of, I think we've talked about this with Phoenix as well, that a lot of people aren't from Washington and the SeaTac area. They kind of end up there. So there's le- less ties to family and friends and you could kind of just, you know, disappear yeah. You know, one of the things uh, that I've always thought of is that, you know, serial killers gravitate sort of towards the edges. They're running, they're fleeing from something. So they end up on the coast because there's no place to go. Yeah. And where else to end up at the very corner of the country? You know, it's also because we've had a lot of books about serial killers from there. Anne Rule, who wrote the book about Bundy, Stranger Beside Me, she said that there are serial killers everywhere, but it's just the detectives in the Pacific Northwest are so better trained to find patterns because they've had so much practice, which I found was pretty interesting. And she also said that serial killers are competitive, so maybe they come out to where their heroes operated, which is a little strange as well. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, one of the things, shameless plug for season five of Unraveled, but we actually went to Seattle, me and Lex, to investigate a murder that had all the markings of a serial killer, and everybody thought it was a serial killer. But as far as we know, this guy only killed one time. But it's true, the detectives up there have seen a lot. Right. And I also think there's um, this aspect of just there's so much wilderness and it's raining all the time. And there's like, it's sort of dark just, and gloomy. It's a little gloomy. And also like 
There's a lot of places, you know, to bury bodies. And a lot of people like live off the grid. I just feel like there's a lot of places to hide either Mm -hmm. the perpetrator themselves or evidence of a crime. And the rain, I think, also, you know, destroys evidence outdoors. I think there's a lot of perks. Not that we're encouraging would-be serial killers to move there. Please get some some help if you're having those ideations. Exactly. So anyways, the fact that so many serial killers were active at the same time Gary Puckett was being looked at presented quite an obstacle. So the multiple serial killers, coupled with the fact that in 1997, DNA testing took time. You needed a relatively large sample, and it just wasn't as reliable or sensitive as it is today. So the cops certainly had their work cut out for them. When they were talking about the Green River stuff, that he was at least being suspected of four recent murders in and around the Green River area, including the, the one that he, I guess, has been tied to, the 51-year-old lady who was jogging with her dog. So given all the investigative obstacles and many serial killers that had operated or were operating in this area, how exactly would law enforcement separate the work of one killer from another? Well, the answer is, with great difficulty, and they'd have to take it one case at a time. So the first case that they looked into as potentially having a connection to Gary was the murder of a 31-year-old woman named Denise Elaine Simon. Denise, a mother of two, had been murdered July 19, 1997, just about three months before Alice Underdahl was killed. So here's what happened. On July 18th of 97, Denise decided to go out with some of her girlfriends, and they went bar hopping in the SeaTac area right off PCH. First, they went to a restaurant called the South China Doll, which was like this locals-only kind of spot. After the bars were closed, they went to a party. But eventually, Denise wanted to go home, so she accepted a ride from a man driving a red Dodge Ram truck. The man was nice and dropped Denise at a friend's house at a Kent trailer park. Denise made it to the home of her friend and knocked on the door, but the friend wasn't home. So then she was able to make a call that night to a different friend, and she said she had gotten to her friend's house, but it was empty. It's unclear where she made this call from, but either way, on this phone call, she told the friend that she planned to walk home from there, and it wasn't that far. Police theorized that somewhere along the walk, she encountered her killer. The following morning, a 13-year-old boy found Denise's body in the tall grass off a busy street called Canyon Road, 3.5 miles from where she lived in the East Hill neighborhood of Kent. The boy told his uncle about what he'd found, who didn't believe him, until the boy convinced his uncle to come and look for himself. They went back the following morning. Denise's body was found with a shirt and jacket pulled up to her neck and jeans pulled down to her knees and brush about 15 feet off of the road. After she was identified, police learned that she'd not been reported missing, and in her past, she had no history of domestic violence. Denise's cause of death was determined to be asphyxia due to probable manual strangulation. She'd been raped and strangled. Police worked hard to flush out leads in Denise's slang, but they were scant. There seemed to be no witnesses and few clues. They had made a little headway in the case when the Gary Puckett prospect emerged on their radar as the lead suspect in the Alice Underdahl case. And this was interesting to them because, like Alice, Denise was strangled. But beyond that, Denise has last been seen at the 800 block of South Central Ave, and her route home would have taken her mere blocks away from Gary Puckett's apartment. Something interesting to know about the timing of all this is that Gary's second wife, Donette, left him in early 1997. 
Right, and with wife Donette gone, Gary would have had little accountability to anyone. And perhaps left unsupervised, he reverted sharply back towards his violent tendencies. So, you know, he's living alone now, wife just left him, he's walking home, and he encounters Denise, right? And this is sort of where we're seeing him, like, dip back into his, you know, being reckless as a predator. So that's sort of what the police were thinking. Maybe this was a crime of opportunity. Denise had been sexually assaulted, so DNA evidence was collected. DNA testing took a while back in 1997. But the hope was that DNA would connect Gary conclusively to not just Alice Underdahl, but Denise Simon as well. Law enforcement awaited the results that they hoped would be conclusive. But eventually the results in Denise's case were announced. And Denise's family was heartbroken to learn that Gary Puckett's DNA had not been found on Denise. Denise's killer was still out there. Even 20 years later, Denise's case remains unsolved after local police tested the DNA against several suspects over the years. Kent police are still trying to solve her murder to this day. While police have rolled out Gary as the killer of Denise Simon, they're still not convinced that Alice is the only person that Gary killed, and they continued to work in an attempt to connect Gary to more crimes. In doing so, they put his life under a microscope and conducted a deep dive into his history. And in doing so, some pretty pointed questions began emerging. Given Gary's violent past, why wasn't Gary sent back to prison for a parole violation when he was arrested for failing to register as a sex offender? Had he been, he wouldn't have been free to kill Alice and attempt to kill Julie. And questions about how Gary had been monitored following his second release from prison continued to reveal themselves. Digging into what happened would uncover an egregious trail of failures that allowed Gary Puckett the freedom to commit violent crimes and ruin many innocent lives before he was stopped. The exact systemic failures were outlined in separate lawsuits filed by Julie Schultz and relatives of Alice Underdahl against the Washington Department of Corrections. Let's go back once more and see what happened, shall we? We are winding back to 1980, to Gary Puckett's first known violent attack. Gary, who was 20, raped and battered his friend's 86-year-old grandmother. Prior to his trial, a psychological evaluation was conducted. And we touched on this in part one of the story, but here's a refresher. Gary was, quote, a bright individual suggesting that he is the type of psychopath who was able to achieve his end through manipulation rather than violence. The same report indicated that Gary was unsafe to be at large due to the habitual and dangerous pattern of behavior that he has evidenced over these number of years. Right. He was then referred to as assaultive, dangerous, and not amenable to treatment, and most likely will reoffend. And remember, he also exhibited that pesky polymorphous sexual deviance, which meant that literally no one was safe around him. He would victimize anyone, any opportunity he got. Then in 92, Gary was evaluated yet again at the age of 32, so only six years before he would go on to kill Alice Underdahl. This report determined that he was immature, inadequate, confused man, a high risk to be physically violent in the future. So only six years before, they are anticipating that he will reoffend. In 1994, the year that Gary was paroled and released, the Twin Rivers Prison superintendent signed off on an evaluation that found Gary's prospects for rehabilitation to be very poor, and that Gary was 
likely to reoffend against any female he has access to. Okay, so the same year he's paroled, they're saying it's likely he's going to reoffend to any female he comes in contact with. So they didn't have to parole him. You know, so it's like, where is the the miscommunication between this evaluation and a parole board occurring? I have never seen that before. Likely to reoffend against any female he has access to. That is so remarkable. Huge. What the fuck? Yeah, let's just let him out. (laughs) Well, because you know what? People hate women. If they'd said, like, we'll kill men, they'd probably be like, lock this man away. (laughs) But like the old white dude sitting on these boards are like, eh, there's too many women anyway. Yeah. So then in 1995, court documents indicate that Gary was questioned after being thrown out of a mall by security guards when he exposed himself to teenage girls. Another woman reported being stalked by Gary at the mall and that he'd followed her into a lingerie store. And despite these incidents, which were reported, state corrections officials who were meant to be monitoring Gary while on parole did nothing to investigate the incident. In total, after Gary was paroled in 95, he committed more than 50 parole violations and nothing was done. His parole officer failed to investigate several serious incidents, and none of these infractions were reported to the parole board at all. In fact, his parole officer allowed Gary to attend rock concerts out of state, and obviously many of these had a high attendance of most likely minor females. It's crazy. That's 50 opportunities to send him back to jail. You know, like is one parole violation, you go back to jail. That's how it works. Like you're out of chances. Yeah. They failed 50 times. Yeah. And, you know, it's the could have saved... Alice's life, you know? And then he's like asking his parole officer, can I go see Motorhead out of town? He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, immediately. Here, I'll drive you there. By July of 97, his parole officer reclassified Gary as needing maximum supervision. It's unclear what the catalyst was for this reclassification. The parole officer even came up with a new plan to supervise Gary, and this included going to his home to monitor him. And while all of this seemed to be some semblance of a step in the right direction, The parole officer never followed through on any of this. So this means that the parole officer had no idea that in August of 97, Gary and his wife split. And had officials bothered to find his wife, they would have learned that she moved out of fear that Gary was deteriorating mentally and she felt like he was in a deviancy cycle. The lawsuit further claimed that the community corrections officers should have made at least 43 home visits to Gary's home over the duration of his parole And they made six, six out of 43. Oh my gosh. It's just like painful to read. You know, it's painful to, to like see the fuck up the trail of like incompetence and apathy about like these dangerous sexual predators. Like I understand parole, other people's parole, eh, make a mistake, a drug dealer, you know, this it's bad. You shouldn't do it. But like, Violent sexual predators, you should probably keep them on a pretty short leash. Yeah. So eventually, when the parole officer did actually show up at Gary's, you know, when he determined that he was going to enact this new maximum supervision plan. So he actually walked in and found Gary in bed with an unknown woman. It was during a rare visit that it occurred on September 3rd, only weeks before Alice was killed. And this is a big deal because the woman Gary Puckett was in bed with was actually a minor. But the parole officer didn't ask or care or didn't do anything. It was during the same visit that the officer learned that Gary's wife had left him. And you have to understand how, you know, in parole, Gary was required to be living with her. He can't go rogue and live with someone else. You know, that was a condition of his parole. 
So Gary's engaging in a statutory incident in front of this parole officer without his wife, who he's supposed to be living with, and nothing is done. Alice is killed 20 days after this. There were seriously so many opportunities to prevent this guy from killing Alice and trying to kill Julie. And the ball was dropped every time over and over. And, you know, imagine Alice's family just like that's how little they care about the safety of people in, in, you know, these these areas. It's just awful. By the time the lawsuit against the state of Washington was brought forth, Julie had recovered to some degree. But she had been left with a severely impaired voice facial disfigurement and paralysis, a wing scapula, partial loss of use of her left arm, post-traumatic stress disorder, and severe depression. She was afraid to leave the house. She was afraid to go anywhere alone and felt even more vulnerable because with her vocal cords being destroyed in the attack, she couldn't even call for help should she ever find herself in another dangerous situation. There was an article that we were reading on him somewhere in there where he was evaluated. The experts said he should have been locked up and never let back out, that he had all these tendencies that were there, what all did they exclude him from? What all did they tie him to? But I mean, clearly there was two cases that one, they they had to have had enough evidence that there was a huge letdown by the state for taking care of making sure he was locked up. Following the lawsuit, Alice's family and surviving victim Julie later settled with the Department of Corrections for $4.4 million each. In media interviews, Julie stated that she intended to use the money to try to restore her voice, which then was still just at a rough whisper. The Washington Department of Corrections kind of doubled down on being shitty when they released their own statements to the media. One stated that, that they agreed to the settlement as fiscally prudent and largely because of court rulings and potential jury sympathy for the victims. And they defended Gary's parole officers, citing that their actions were reasonable given their workload and duties. Julie Schultz responded to the callous statements and dismissed the reasoning as a joke. Yeah. And Julie, you know, it's hard to understand why she wasn't treated better um, because she stated in a separate media interview that she wanted an apology from state officials, not only for what they enabled Gary to do with their negligence, but also for the way a state assistant attorney general questioned her as she was being deposed. So they did these depositions in relation, you know, to these law- civil lawsuits. And she claimed that this guy tossed pictures of the crime scene where she was attacked in her face while she was being deposed and demanded to know why the blood was where it was, as if like in an attempt to undermine her story. Like it's like yeah. he did it. Who cares where the blood, why the blood is where it was? You, it's, but it's it's to berate, you know, and and frazzle someone who's d- being deposed. That's exactly what he's doing. He's just trying to completely frazzle her to get anything, uh, anything that he can use in, uh, against her that will make the case that much less and get, and give her less money. There's a theme going on here. It's like you don't give a shit about the safety of women. You don't give a shit about a woman who's been brutalized because of your negligence. So then you're going to try to further traumatize her by undermining her story as she's being deposed. She deserves the money. She needs to get her vocal cords fixed. Like this kind of shit, trying to evade accountability just like really grinds my gears. (laughs) This is a grievance I'm saving for for the uh, Festivus next year. And Julie said in response to all this, 
when she was being deposed and questioned about where the blood was, she's like, I couldn't tell you where the blood was. I was trying to stay alive. So I think we can all agree that Julie was owed an apology at that point. And, you know, it's just sad the way that they treated her after everything she'd been through already. And she helped them stop. She helped stop him from continuing to kill other people. Right. Yeah. She like did their work for yeah. him. Yeah. Gary Puckett's name continues to come up as a possible suspect in cold cases. One of the most recent occurred in 2012 when there was a break in a 1978 case. Everything just kind of drops off after really these other two little cases here. Like, I would think that there would be more DNA and, and how much more stuff, because there's an article about him supposedly being suspected of even back into 1978 that he got away with it and another guy got convicted. So when Mike told us about this, we had to know what he was referring to. And we found the case. So here's what happened. On October 27th, 1978, an elderly woman named Arlene Roberts was found dead on the bed of her ransacked trailer in Bryn Mawr, Washington. She was half naked. Her arms and legs were bound with nylon stockings. She was gagged and her face was covered with a pillow. Investigators were never able to figure out who killed Arlene. That was until 2011, when fingerprint technology led authorities to Ronald Wayne McDonald. His fingerprints had been found on a traveler's check, bank statement, and bank receipt inside Arlene's trailer. Well, I just want to caveat all this. Baffling that they can crack a cold case with fingerprints, and I'm highly suspect of this already, (laughs) Um, where it's like, I thought, you know, when I first was researching this, I'm like, oh, it's genetic genealogy. It's probably DNA. It's like, no, no, they found his fingerprint. So I'm not convinced of his guilt. Truly, I'm not. Just leading with that. And you can listen to uh, one of our recent Killing Times where we dive all into the reliability of fingerprints. Totally. Okay, so Ronald pleaded not guilty. And after the case was set for trial, Ronald's defense got to work and realized that Gary Puckett could have actually been the perpetrator. The defense clung to this theory through the proceedings. So at the time of Arlene's murder, Gary would have only been 19 years old at the time. But remember, he did strangle an 86-year-old woman unconscious and then raped her while he was only 20. So it's not really crazy to imagine that at 19 years old, he could have been capable of brutally murdering an 80-year-old. Ronald's defense motioned to use Gary for an alternative suspect defense, and the judge allowed it. The prosecution was not happy about this, and they said that there was no forensic evidence at the scene to suggest that Gary was the killer. The DNA evidence under Arlene's fingernails was not Gary's, but it wasn't Ronald's either. The prosecution was now worried that if Gary was presented as an alternative suspect in Arlene's case, that there could be reasonable doubt. So they offered him a deal. If McDonald took an Alfred plea to second-degree manslaughter, he'd be sentenced to just 16 months behind bars. Only 16 months for murdering and strangling an elderly woman. So since Ronald faced 20 years if convicted at trial, he took the deal. However, he has always maintained his innocence. And his defense continues to point to Gary Puckett as the real suspect in Arlene Roberts' murder. So did Gary kill Arlene? Maybe. Did Ronald McDonald kill Arlene? Who knows, because fingerprint technology is not ironclad. It's like maybe, but this is like the most... But you need a little bit of something else. (laughs) You need something else. Um, And I also just want to, you know, say hypothetically, Gary did do it, okay? Well, here's another person who, you know, has died at the hands of somebody who was not supervised properly. But say Ronald McDonald (laughs) did it, okay? Because of Gary and because of his, what he was allowed to do... The killer of this woman is only getting 16 months. Yeah. 
in like what justice is that for a murdered grandmother you know yeah. like either way either it's like true. gary's they're you know the wake of gary puckett continues to devastate people yeah so there's something else we haven't clarified yet so we just said, you know, Arlene Roberts, Gary Puckett's DNA wasn't found on her, and neither was Ronald McDonald's. And those are the two main suspects, right? In the case of Alex Underdahl, there wasn't Gary's DNA on her either, okay? So yet law enforcement claimed to be so sure that Gary was her killer that her case has long since been closed due to these several things. He'd been identified at the scene. He had the scratches. And her murder aligned with him going on the run. And apparently, according to the lawsuit documents, he confessed to his estranged wife that he'd done it. So they're pretty sure, you know, mm -hmm. it, it looks to be him. You know, we could all feel pretty good about that. But also, they are ruling Gary out as a killer in a lot of these cases they looked into him for because of a lack of DNA. So this is, you know, sort of something we've talked about throughout this episode. How do we know? what he's connected to really because the dna collection at the time these were happening was poor they didn't have you know evidence of him killing dna evidence on alice yet we know he did that his dna wasn't on denise simon they ruled him out for that well why because yeah. somebody else's dna was there well that doesn't mean he didn't kill her like i just think they're not really sure how much he's responsible for her. but it i doubt it's just the one mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, personally. Doubt it. So we asked Mike and Angie to reflect back on this experience. And Angie's dad, who was the CEO of Micron Industries in 97 when this all went down, remember, he was fond of Gary. Mike worked in the same room as him for months. Gary was harassing some women at work, likely having romantic relationships with others. And learning that an impulsive killer has been in your orbit always feels just a little too close for comfort. That being said, at least Angie and Mike found each other at Micron, and after being married for two decades, they now have two daughters. You think about life differently and what really happens and how that mentality of it won't happen to me or it can't happen to someone that's in my family. And now both myself and Mike, we, we, we have a daughter that's going to college next year, and we are like, be rude. You do not have to be this pleasant feminine person because we've taught you that like if you get a bad feeling about someone you take action like this is bs you do not be nice i don't care we all have creepy colleagues or creepy employees creeps who live in our neighborhood sex offenders who live down the street and have failed to register sadistic minds have this incredible ability to slip through the cracks and systems put in place that are meant to protect us from them we clearly can't always rely on these systems to protect us from lifelong predators like Gary Puckett. So we need to protect ourselves constantly. Extremely cautious now and more aware of, even at the time when I was still there, that I would always be more aware of who's behind me, where am I going, and just being aware of, of what's going on around you. I constantly tell even my kids that you just never know anything about anyone, and you just have to be careful of how you interact with them, especially my two girls, that you need to be aware of the signs of, of people being inappropriate and giving, when you have that weird feeling that this guy's a creeper, you need to listen to it.
A huge thank you to Mike and Angie for being our first degree connections for these past two episodes. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. Please follow us on Instagram at thefirstdegree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek. Follow us on TikTok. We just started it and I'm obsessed with it. Just search the first degree with three E's. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Happy Puppy Day. Happy Puppies Over Kittens Day. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland Sources for this episode. Our uh, Seattle PI spokesman, Court Documents, Seattle Times, Williston Herald, Q13 Fox, the Tacoma News Tribune, the Seattle Post-Intelliger, court documents. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source.